0: jess van nostrand this month i interviewed visual artist jen dalton in her williamsburg studio in brooklyn where she has made among many things work about her neighborhood that spans 10 years we met to talk specifically about our current monument topic at the project room and how it relates to her interest in rapidly changing neighborhoods the conversation also meandered into all sorts of places including poking fun at the art world thanks for listening To your studio. Thanks for coming. Uh, It's like a little bit snowing outside, and we're in your lovely, cozy studio in East Williamsburg. So here we are. Um, And I thought we should talk about um, legacy and how we're remembered, and monument and all these kinds of things, and whether or not you find that they're making their way into your work. But first, I met you 10 years ago when I um, visited your studio in this same general location and you were working on a project called Getting to Know the Neighbors and you've recently revisited the project. So I'd love to start with that and ask you, um, tell us a little bit about the first iteration of the project and then why you wanted to revisit it. What about it made you want to go back and think about those things again?
1: Okay. Um, Well, uh, in 2004... um, I had just bought a house in this neighborhood two doors down from where we are right now. And I was pregnant with my son. And um I had lived in Williamsburg for I guess eight years at that point, but I started being much more anxious about its toxic the neighborhood's toxic reputation. Um In what in what do you mean by toxic?
0: Like literally toxic? Yeah, literally okay. toxic. So
1: before Williamsburg was synonymous with hipster, it was synonymous with toxicity, and <laughs> um, it has, still has a lot of industry, it has a lot less than it used to, but it has um, a really polluted waterway, Newtown Creek, um, sort of famously gross, um, and it has a lot of old industry. It has, um, it has had, I guess, two Superfund sites, it's a site of that Exxon oil spill that is larger than any in U.S. history, but it took place over 40 or so years, so it was like seeping into Newtown Creek and into the um, aquifers under the neighborhood for 40 years, and um, and we all felt at the time that the neighborhood would never gentrify because of this, actually, mm. but we were wrong. It's been very interesting, as the second part of my project has, has sort of made Very clear, but the first part. So it's 2004, and um, I'm trying to figure out how bad it really is in Williamsburg, Mm. because it has this reputation, and it has a lot of old factory buildings that are that artists are like um, living in and working in. Um, But it's uh, and you know people were totally already talking about gentrification, but it was still pretty pretty um, gritty at that time. And I, we were thinking, oh, God, we're really putting down roots here. We're buying a house. We're having a kid. Um, how can we find out how bad it really is? And so I started digging around on the Internet, and um, one amazing tool that still exists is you can go to the Environmental Protection Agency's website, and you can plug in any zip code in the U.S., and you can see um, it's called EnviroMapper, <laughs> and you can see um, what sites are regulated in your neighborhood as being potentially hazardous to the community. And these can be sites that have permits, companies or industries that have permits to have hazardous waste on site. Um, And so that includes even like school science labs, um, sometimes con ed, manholes, um, uh, 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 gas stations, Or it can be sites in uh, companies that have permits to um, put fumes into the air or uh, chemicals into the ground or chemicals into the water. Um, And and the map will tell you what sort of categories each site falls into. Hmm. And I searched Williamsburg and Greenpoint and there were 396 sites in our neighborhood that were considered, that were on this list of potentially hazardous sites for the community, and I went and, not really knowing how to deal with that, (laughs) I went and actually visited each one, and I took a photograph of each one, and I made um, a 100-foot long accordion book of the photographs that was on like a sort of meandering shelf so that you could sort of mimic a walk through the neighborhood um, along this two-sided accordion book that sort of snaked through a space. Um, and then I decided to just sort of live with it (laughs) and I didn't move and I still live here and now it is almost 11 years later now. I mean, I guess it's 10 and a half years later and, um, no, it's, yeah, it's almost 11 years. Mm -hmm. So, um, last fall, last summer, the summer that my son turned 10, with no asthma and no obvious ill effects. (laughs) I mean, he's a weirdo, but I think they're all weirdos. Um, So then, um, and the neighborhood has really exploded in terms of uh, real estate and development um, in large part because in 2004, the year that I did this project, was the first of a series of rezonings by... City government to allow a lot more building in, in particular in Williamsburg and Greenpoint along the waterfront, and then subsequently um, inland in Williamsburg and Greenpoint also to allow way more high density buildings. Mm. So, um, and it's just been a general explosion in the um, in the affluence of New York in general and Brooklyn and Williamsburg specifically. Um, so the neighborhood has just gotten way, way, way more fancy and way more built up. And I thought, it because I had this record of 2004, it would be amazing to go back and document what had happened to all of these sites that were, you know, it's hard to know exactly how bad each of them is. They make it really hard to find out what its actual effect on the, its surrounding area might be. Like, that's not an easy thing to find out, and it varies site, site to site, but... So many of those sites that were potentially hazardous at that time are now apartment buildings and movie theaters and grocery stores and kids' play spaces um, and clubs, like bars and clubs and stuff, that um, it's been a really fascinating thing to go back to. Not just to, like, the neighborhoods changing, but these particular sites because they Mm -hmm. were potentially hazardous. At some point, they had hazardous industry in them. Um, and to see how they have transformed in the last 10 years.
0: Are they still hazardous? I mean, if you went back to that website and looked again... Most of them are still
1: on the website. Really? But, but they're still on the website with their old company name and everything. Like it, I. Oh, so it's not clear if it's been updated. It is not clear. I mean, it's definitely been updated in the last 10 years. Like, mm-hmm. um, enough has changed that... It's It's not just a static mm-hmm. site, like it is, there's an attempt at updating these things, but um, it is very clearly out of date. Like So a lot of the sites um, still, like now it's an apartment building and it still says it's a metal plating industry.
0: Right. And it's interesting how you chose to visually represent the 2014 version. So the original version you described as kind of like a walk through the neighborhood, mm-hmm. but then... The part two, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, looks very different.
1: Yeah, well, part two is still in process. Um, so part two, when it's finished, will be 396 pairs, and with the 2004 and the 2014. Um, but and I've shot all of those because I wanted to shoot them all at the same time. I wanted to shoot them all the summer when my son turned 10. So. Um, uh, they've all been shot, but they haven't all been formatted and mounted and made into whatever the next incarnation of the installation will be. But for um, for an art fair in Miami, I made an installation with the first 40 pairs. Um, and so it's about a tenth of the project. Um, and I made a faux real estate office where the um, the pairs of matted images are hanging in what would Sort of a, a fake front window um, that l- blocks off part of the art fair booth, like the front, like it's basically like a fake window. So they're they're strung, they're suspended um, on those like kind of clippy wire things that mm-hmm. you see in real real estate office windows. Yeah. Um, and then um, inside is a fake office with some like real estate clippings and a gumball machine and um, a an acrylic briefcase of that looks like it would be a briefcase of cash, but it's actually a briefcase of debt. It's um, my own credit card offers that I've collected over a year. So it's like how much debt would I have if I um, had, you know, it's, it's totally theoretical, like you can't get, you can't redeem every credit card offer you get, you know, or every offer of like checks, you know, those checks that you get. But um, I wanted to get at the idea of just being pummeled with offers for cash. And so I added it all up. I bundled them like cash in this see-through briefcase. And then um, I added it all up. And in a year, I was offered $1,350,000. Mm.
0: <clears> and what would that buy you in your fake real estate office?
1: Um, it would buy you a lot of the smaller properties. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to have a $1,300,000 of debt, you could buy some of the smaller properties.
0: Yeah. Well, so I'm wondering when it was 2004, and you were first documenting these properties. Did you have a prediction or a thought about where it was going to go in 10 years? Mm -mm. I mean, just having lived here and and,
1: well, it had already yeah, it had already transformed a lot. You know, Mm -hmm. in the previous 10, um, you know, a lot of people already felt like it was really built up then. I mean, it wasn't built up like literally there wasn't um, height the way there is now Mm -hmm. in the neighborhood. Um, But it was already getting gentrified for sure. Um, and no, I mean, we knew that there was a big rezoning of the waterfront, um, at the time the waterfront was like derelict, dangerous, like you could, you could duck under a broken fence and, you know, see how beautiful it was if you could just sit there, but you really, you know, you were like hanging out with broken glass and, Mm -hmm um and it was really i mean uh, you know i'm not a city planner but it was impossible to imagine that there'd be a 40 story 40 story buildings and ferries and a gorgeous dock and gardens i mean as much as the, the rezoning and the development have brought a lot brought a lot of things that we hate you have to admit some of it's actually really nice mm-hmm. like i mean it's it's um it's a nice park now a lot of that waterfront um, it remains to be seen, I mean, a lot of the deal that the mayor, that Bloomberg cut with the developers was that these are, this is a lot of it's private land, but it's private land that the, that they have to let the public on. But that sunsets at a certain point, um, and I think it's like 10 or 15 years. Um, it's theoretically possible that the public won't always have access mm-hmm. to that waterfront. Um, it depends on... I mean, it seems like they made different deals with different parcels. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that goes. But it, I have to admit, they they made did some nice landscaping.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty. It's hard to know. I mean, I think it's a, it's a an issue that a lot of cities struggle with, including Seattle, where the project room is based. And I, um, it seems to me that it's never just a simple story. That some people get sort of architectural nostalgia about buildings, and then um, sometimes. I guess improvements can be made, or sometimes something has been an empty lot for so long, you just think, just build something, please. Right, right.
1: (laughs) It's very, it's totally doubled it, double it. When I first moved to this neighborhood, we used to just say, if we could just have one comfortable bar... Just, like, one nice bar. <laughs> and now there are, I don't even know how many, there might be a thousand bars in a zip code. Yeah. You
0: know? I mean, does it feel like too much now? Like It what? definitely feels like yeah. too
1: much. Like, when you see a derelict storefront, like a cute derelict storefront and now I just think anything but a bar come on
0: anything but a bar <laughs> it's funny how we change our
1: minds right I mean
0: so well we just we have enough we, <laughs> we have enough me. we need to change yeah I, totally I think I'm that like, makes sense I'm like now can I have
1: something practical yeah <laughs> yes.
0: I used to say like why isn't there just a hardware store if there's so many cute little boutiques of things I don't really need can they right. just squeeze in like a hardware store so I can like get right. some hooks so I can make my own cute stuff <laughs> Totally. Um, So uh, one of the things that I really love about your work is your sort of uh, cheeky critique of the art world, I guess you could call it. That's my description. I don't know how you would describe it. But um, I was wondering um, when that started for you and when you started to kind of look at the art world, step away from it maybe a little bit and look at it with a sense of humor. Well,
1: I think that... I started... I think that my work has always had this idea of trying to examine my own surroundings. And that that I am just always casting around for different ways to interpret that, but that feels like my my goal or my mission or something is to almost like, you know, like an analog of a landscape painter or a domestic painter or something where I really want to document the situation I find myself in. and. You know, that could be my neighborhood or that could be my belongings. Like, you know, I've documented everything that I own twice with also a 10-year interval. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also just, I feel like I'm soaking in the soup of the art world. And that's my community and that's my context. And that's another another way... Um, of examining another angle on who I am and where I am and what my surroundings are is this weird community of people who care about this weird thing that almost no one cares about. Um.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's funny. I was gonna ask you to describe it a bit more, but that's a good start. I mean, so to someone who's not in the art world, And say, I mean, for those of us who are in the art world, sometimes we just find ourselves, like, rolling our eyes, like, oh, God, of course. Yeah. But, like, how would you describe that feeling or those things that make you roll your eyes?
1: Well, I guess it's... The art lives in such a strange place where, on the one hand, it's not worth anything because it doesn't do anything. It's not useful. It has no intrinsic value. But because some wealthy people value it, it has a totally irrational, outsized, symbolic value that um, it simultaneously is worthless and priceless. Like, it's just so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, we think of art as a gift. Like, it's, it's something that, um, that you do for other reasons than money. And then on the other hand, you're presented, you, you were surrounded by this like, horrifying market mm-hmm. where these gifts are monetized. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the one hand, you want to think of what you do as outside of commerce. And on the other hand, what you're doing is work, and you don't want to do it for free. <laughs> you know? Right. And so one of the things I love to do is to try to dig into those kind of
0: paradoxes. Tell us how. Give us some examples. of.
1: Okay. Well that just done. made me think of, I, I did a piece a few years ago for an art fair um, called Paradox Party Favors. Because actually I've done, all, I've done a lot of pieces where, you, where I give away, um, where I ask people to make a choice. And what they do when they make a choice is they vote by taking something that I'm basically giving away for free. And at a certain point um, I started thinking, oh my God, am I making party favors for rich people? <laughs> What was your conclusion? Yes. And that's okay. <laughs> right, right. But so then I just wanted to push that even further and I thought, um, so I'm gonna make and and so there was this weird feeling about like um about all these paradoxes that doing that made me feel like um and so I took all of those paradoxes well there's four.
0: Do I have them here? Excuse me, I'll stop for a
1: second. So I made um, literal party favors with these paradoxes on them. So this is like a bowl
0: of after-dinner mints. Yeah. And and they're wrapped. The
1: the bowl is only, um, the bowl is not really part of the work. This is just what I keep in the studio. The work was um, um, an opaque plexiglass box with tongs. And it had a hole that wasn't big enough for your hand to go in, but you could reach in with tongs. And you could pull out, um, you didn't know exactly what you were going to pull out, but you pulled out these wrapped dinner mints. And they have four different paradoxes on them. And one of them says, I want to overturn the system, but also to succeed in it. (laughs) (laughs) And one says, I hate elitism, but I distrust mainstream tastes. (laughs) Wonderful. And one says, the one that made me think of it is, art is a gift, but working for free gets exhausting. And I think money corrupts, except when I have some. (laughs)
0: So you're really and so you're asking people and actually in a lot of your work you're asking people to make choices yeah, and to choose and something. Yeah, this particular
1: one I decided to do it a little differently so you don't know what you're going to get when you when mm-hmm. you use the tongs. So a lot of the time I do ask people to make a choice and then say if it's a gumball machine with two different two different two gumball machines next to each other with two different sort of answers to a question, then the one that's more popular it becomes like a bar graph, the one mm-hmm. that's more popular has a lower level in the, in the graph, you know, so people are sort of voting um, by taking something. In this particular case, though, I wanted... It was, like, opaque, so you put your little tongs in and you don't know what you're, what you're going to get.
0: How did people react
1: to this um, project?
0: Well, one of the things that...
1: And that's actually this, this, this piece in particular was another thing it was in reaction to is a lot of times when, especially when I've done works like this and I've had them at art fairs, people just treat it as swag like um sometimes I feel like they don't even look at what the thing is but it is free stuff (laughs) like ooh, free mints free stuff and so in recent years I've tried to work with that and um and tried to make it like a little time bomb thing where like so, so they so maybe someone just takes three of these and shoves them in their bag But later tonight, or maybe when they get back from the art fair, they're going to empty their bag and they're going to be, what is this? (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, in my head, I savor that moment. Or one time, actually, I made a gumball machine where you could choose between a pink one and an orange one, but you couldn't see what was in. And what was in was one of these bracelets. I've made a lot of little bracelet pieces, but the bracelet said, in this really ornate script that was hard to read, it said, what this says does not matter. And so it was like a fake choice, like someone would think that the two were going to be different, and then they were actually it's it's really pretty bullshit like you know yeah. in that mm-hmm. um, the bracelet because um, it was
0: it was very pretty looking, but then once you figured out what it said, it didn't say anything so how do you operate in this place where you're you're sort of, you, you're making fun or you're poking fun or or maybe offering a critique of the world in which you function, in which you're sort of a willing participant. I mean do you ever think like, um, does it make it easier in sort of a way like, hey only I can make fun of my mom. <laughs> right, right,
1: right. Well I think the way that it makes it easier is just that it makes it a lot less depressing. Like um, so when you, when I find something that seems really horrifying if I can find a way to make it funny or, um, like, one thing I, I remember I said totally accidentally one time and then it became sort of my mantra is I've turned my rage into glee. <laughs> like, sort of the worse things are, the more I think, oh, my God,
0: I can totally
1: do something funny with this.
0: So I saw that you have a piece. I actually don't know it very well. Maybe you can tell us about it. But I, but I was struck by the title, A Task No One Assigned. And it struck me because um, I often thought about like the first twelve years of my career under that title, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've uh, been, I've had, I've related to a lot of artists having this kind of conversation that um, about doing work that nobody hired you to do, nobody yeah. recruited you to do it, and certainly nobody, and nobody went out of their way to ask you to and do for it for so
1: long. At, Slash possibly forever. Nobody cares whether you do it or not.
0: Yeah, even maybe after, <laughs> yeah. which is like what keeps people like us up at night. Yeah. Which is like, oh my god, I was hoping this might matter, right. even a smidgen. Right. Um, so tell me about yeah. Just I wanted to just talk about that idea for a minute. When you're choosing, or maybe not. Maybe choosing makes it seem too simple. But when you're determining what what your career might be, and you're forging this path. Um, how do you how do you think about that question? It seems like it could really like get in the way of right. Well, your that's work. The,
1: that's always okay. So the ta- the that a task no one assigned. I named a show that I did in two thousand two. I called that, and it is a quote that seemed really offhand. It was part of an art review of a group exhibition that Peter Sheldahl wrote. Um, I think it was in the New Yorker. So it was like in two thousand one, two thousand two, and he was describing the and he, he said through, in this, in this art review he said, art is a task no one assigned. And yeah, that just hit me like a ton of bricks because that is the hard thing about art is almost any other job, at least someone tells you what to do and then you figure out how to do it. But as an artist or, you know, an artist in the broadest term, not just a fine artist or visual artist, but um, you actually have to figure out what the job is and then you have to do it. <laughs> and that's super, super hard. Um,
0: so now I don't remember the question that you asked about that. was that. it. I mean, <laughs> just about what it's like to have that kind of job. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people out, have no idea what it's like to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to make these decisions, um, and I'm going to map out my day, or maybe I'm going to map out the next few months. And it's completely based on me, like you say, sort of guessing about what this job can and should right. be.
1: What's the right thing to do next? And then... Then you figure out if you actually can do a good job of that thing that you decided was the next. But been- how do you measure next. if right. you did a good job? You, I always feel like, I mean, you have to, like, you make, you make decisions all day and you have to decide whether, when you think the job has been done well or not. But ultimately, the judgment is left to other people. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we all have to, we just feel compelled to do the best job that we can. But then... The real, the judge, the true judge is is the rest of the people, not the person who made it. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about longevity? I mean, since since we're talking about monument and legacy and things, I mean, do you think about how your work might be remembered, or how? I mean, do you do you spend time thinking about um, what it might look like in another ten or twenty years with your project that's specific I mean, to the neighborhood?
1: One thing that that. Um, one thing that I've done now three times is I've revisited the same project 10 years later. And I sometimes think, um, sometimes I'm excited about this thought and sometimes I dread it, that I might just continue doing that for the next few decades. Yeah, I mean, is, interesting. You know, revisiting some of these projects at intervals. And, you know, because I, I am super interested in information and I always like to count things and I always like you know, that's part of asking people to make choices and and I do some work with surveys, like I ask people to fill out surveys sometimes. And what, and so each of those things sort of gives me a snapshot, but revisiting a project 10 years later gives me like a trend line, you know, and um, I really like doing that. I really like seeing how things have evolved. I mean, and Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that I count things Or like I'm interested in information and charts and graphs in general, is that I don't really trust my own perceptions very much. And so a lot of times, like a lot of times I I start a project, like the genesis of a project is, is it just me? (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Is it just me or you know, is this neighborhood totally unsafe? Even though I look around and there's buckets of people living here, (laughs) you know, or is it just me or like, in the case of A Task No One Assigned, that that piece was, um, I took, um, images from The New Yorker magazine, because I felt like The New Yorker magazine was really sexist in their images, even when the images were of artists. I felt like they treated the woman artists and the men artist totally differently in their portraits of them, you know? Like, um... uh, And I only looked at photographs, I didn't look at drawings, but, um, so I collected, in that first piece, it was three years, 1999, 2000, and 2001, I cut out every picture of an artist that that was in the New Yorker magazine for those three years, and then I sorted them, um, first by men and women, and then I ranked each image on a scale from genius to pinup, because I felt like that was the axis that the New Yorker sort of treated artists, like... Are, do am I supposed to want to be you or fuck you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, am I supposed to take you seriously or are you eye candy? But you're like intellectual eye candy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it became very clear when I did that. Like, it, it became sort of a graphic on the wall that the men all were clustered on the genius side and the women all were clustered on the pinup side. Um, But again, that that so that project also started. Is it just me? Yeah, because I have a chip on my shoulder about that. I could totally admit that. But, but is thought, there like, data it,
0: to back it yeah, up? Yeah, but is it true? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> then, then then you're becoming a researcher. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Like i totally um subjective, like I do it all by hand and then I then I find like sort of quirky ways to illustrate it. But but yeah, like it's mm-hmm. so it's so, it's like amateur sociology.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um So I just have one final question, and it's a hard one. And I was thinking about Monument and how we're kind of newly into 2015 here. Um, And this is probably just something I'm really preoccupied with, but then it made me reflect on 2014. So if you could commemorate or even make a monument to something of 2014, and it could be anything, is there anything that you would choose? Well, I...
1: Don't know yet what this monument would look like, but it seems to me that the last year has been a year that, that if, you, if you look at the world clearly at all, you realize that we're totally doomed because of climate change. <laughs> and I wonder how we could build a monument to that. Could I build, um...
0: Like a monument of warning? Like, no, no. Or like, like more, more like sad... Marking.
1: Like, okay, this maybe what... I could make a permanent glacier out of plastic. <laughs> 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 this one can't melt.
0: <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, monuments mm. are in many ways meant to be permanent markers of things. Right. So why not make a permanent marker of something that quite that is possibly disappearing. is disappearing? Right.
1: Maybe put it at one foot above sea level somewhere. <laughs> It'll be like spiral teddy.
0: <laughs> oh, that's such a good answer. I can't, I, I'm done. I can't ask you anything else. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much.